0: Teaching OPT University is honestly like probably the highlight of my day every single day just because I know it's helping our team get better, uh, which in turn helps our customers become more educated about our our products and everything like that. So it's just a a nice uh, chain reaction of of, uh, effects there.
1: If you type in beginner telescope in a lot of places, you can get a lot of bad information And get, um, you know, very, very confident (laughs) people giving very wrong answers.
2: That was Brian Fulda. And, of course, you recognize Dustin's voice there. Uh, But Brian joins us today. He is a member of the SEO team at OPT. He's also an instructor at the OPT University. And today we are going to talk to you about using your brand new scope from a beginner's perspective. So, let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Brian and Dustin, and happy 2021. It's almost the end of January, but we're doing it. We're making episodes again. And today, I think we're going to talk about beginning astronomy. Bought your brand-new telescope over the holidays. You brought it home, unboxed it, looked at all that stuff, and then went, now what? (laughs) And that's what this episode's about. Dustin, Brian, and I are going to talk to you guys about what to do with your brand-new telescope. What are some of the things that almost everybody has a problem with when they first start looking up in the sky with a new telescope? And so we're going to try and help you out with uh, with getting the most out of your brand-new telescope. So how this are you is guys a fun doing? One.
1: This was this was a fun idea because it's such a an interesting kind of uh challenge to tackle when you get your first scope. If you really like if you're a true beginner and you've never used a telescope before, depending on the type you get, I mean our first first telescope was a dobsonian and so I I can honestly tell you I didn't even know where I was supposed to look through. You know, it, they had caps over the mirrors and I was like, "Well, how does this work like what parts do I need to take off because the caps had smaller caps and it's like the most you, it feels like this should be basic I should know what I'm doing and it can be a daunting <laughs> it's, it can be pretty, a daunting it's task. pretty intimidating yeah yeah it can be intimidating well
2: joining us today I'll let me introduce Brian Fulda he is also a member of uh, OPT's team uh, introduce yourself Brian tell us what you're doing and what you do at OPT
0: yeah so uh, I'm in the marketing team at se uh excuse me at opt um i work on the seo team specifically within marketing and but i kind of wear a lot of hats at opt Uh, as much as i enjoy helping out on seo i'm also helping out uh with tech support and um pro services as well so yeah i kind of kind of help out wherever i'm needed so
1: yeah and and also in um In OPT University that we do every day, Brian is actually the main teacher um, at OPT University for the team. You know, we have uh, daily training where the team, you know, learns everything from, you know, basic, uh, you know, ideas of astronomy and, you know, what is sidereal tracking and all all of these things, all the way up to the very complex stuff that, you know, we we work on for um, the pro customers, the NASA and JPL type stuff. So... Um everything in between, so brian you you can definitely speak on on these topics as well as anyone.
0: Thanks, yeah, and teaching OPT university is honestly like probably the highlight of my day every single day just because I know it's helping our team get better, uh, which in turn helps our customers become more educated about our our products and everything like that. So it's just a it's a nice uh, chain reaction of of uh, effects there.
1: It's so important to to run into those issues before customers ever do. You know, like talking about it every day, I find it's just the best way to make sure that we're always thinking and re- remembering the problems because it's so easy to live in the bubble. And I think this podcast, this episode is a great example of that. It's like I didn't I don't think about the beginner issues anymore like which part of the telescope to look through because it's just been so long since I've had that problem. But it's still a problem. It's just not a problem for us now. But you have to remember those times where it was a problem for you, and talk about those things in order to remember to come back to it and address it, so that everyone can be successful getting into it, and they don't. Then you know it, it gives people a way to leapfrog and into to kind of skip some of the hurdles that we might have tripped over. You know. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, – uh, I'm going
2: to go all the way back to the 70s to talk to you about my my first experience. But we are – yeah, that's it's, – it's not always obvious, you know, what people – you know, what to do with this stuff. And so we're going to help share some of that with you now. But I just want to – I want to comment real quick on, on the university, OPT University. I think that the, what you guys are doing for your – not just your employees but also ultimately your customers is this idea that you're not just starting with – experts right I mean you can certainly hire experts and get experts on the team and you have you have many already there but it's great that, that you have a pool of people who are just passionate about space and astronomy and and would love to get that knowledge do you find Brian when you're doing the uh, the training every day that there's just this enthusiasm for learning about this stuff but without necessarily having a lot of the experience or you know what's it what's it like with with that when you're teaching these guys?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's a ton of enthusiasm from our team. It's super cool to, you know, have people asking all sorts of questions. And, you know, we, we try to cover a really wide range of topics. Like, you know, some days we'll talk about, okay, here's how to collimate a Schmidt Cassegrain. And then other days it'll just be as simple as like, here's the difference between a refractor a reflector and a catadioptric, you know? Um, so kind of, changing up the difficulty levels every day also really helps, uh, keeps everyone involved.
2: So, yeah, I mean, it's like free, it's like a free astronomy course, man. It's just, it's just amazing. I love the idea yeah. of what you're doing. Um, okay. So how do you guys think we should do this? Should we just start with what we think are the, the big issues or do you want to pick an example of a telescope that somebody may have gotten or how, do you, what do you think? The yeah. Best I way think the experiences
1: that, that we've had will probably be a lot of, look, I, I made a lot of mistakes. A lot. Me and too. Me too. Those mistakes are the things that we want to prevent other people from having to make. I should start this off, though, by saying if if you hear something in the background of mine that sounds like, like a, a dinosaur or some pretty extreme snoring, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. I have a bulldog sitting here next to me. And... <laughs> and- he, uh, he had a rough day yesterday, man. It was a horrible day. He, we took him in for a routine ear cleaning, which you have to do for bulldogs, um, you know, squishy face and everything. He goes in for a routine ear cleaning. They call me and they say he's in critical condition and not responsive. And so he has to be rushed oh to God. this like, animal emergency oh, no. room and he wasn't breathing. And I mean, they really messed up. I think they gave him the wrong uh, medication. And I mean, it almost killed him. And so we just got him back home so he has to stay by my side while well, Which which one? You have two. This is Orwell. Orwell. Is oh. George Orwell. He,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, he uh It's a great name.
1: Yeah, he had a he had a really tough day, man, but he's he's family and so he's just he's going to be in this podcast in the background you'll hear bulldog snoring. <laughs> um but he's he's sprawled out at my feet here next to me and you know, I've got to keep an eye on him. So if you hear the snoring, I apologize, but I can't I can't turn it off. <laughs> they, they are the cutest doggies, too. Man. Yeah, I love them. <laughs> I did
0: hear it, and I just I kind of assumed that there was like a, a baby somewhere in the background, just kind of gently it's crying. It's exactly what it is.
1: It's just a bulldog one, you know. <laughs> he, uh, he, he earned his time in here today.
0: Well, speediest of recoveries to Orwell. That's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah that's
2: right. Yeah, Get yeah. better, yeah. boy. Get
1: better. He's going to be okay. They just, they really messed up. You know, you really have to choose your your vets well, because I mean, they made a mistake that could have, could have cost him his life, you know, and, um, you know, but we got it taken care of in time and he's good to go, but he's going to take a few days to recover and he's still coming off of all the sedatives. So he's knocked out.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, good <laughs> take anyway, it easy, man. <laughs> anyway,
1: back to, uh, back to all astronomy right. problems, not vet problems. Um, so yeah, I think that you know, astrophotography is a little bit different. It comes with its own set of hurdles. But I think most people still get in when they think astronomy for the first time, they think, or they think telescope for the first time. They still think, I want to look through a telescope. They don't, yeah. usually there's a couple steps before they think, and it's not too long, but there's a couple steps before people start to think, I want to take pictures of what I see through the telescope. But looking through the telescope, I think, is the first um, the first place people to start. And so that's where the hurdles are. And generally it can start as early as like even just selecting one. And that's where the mistakes start. Can you give us some sense um, since you're, since you sell
2: these uh, all over the world, can you give us some sense of what, Kind of telescopes people are buying for the first time. Do you have an idea what's are they buying refractors?
1: Well, are they buying ref- sure? Yeah, you know, we're, in a, we're in kind of a unique situation. We get a unique perspective where, yeah, we we know exactly what that answer is. <laughs> That's right. I think um, it's <laughs> but yeah, and we try to steer people toward the right things because if you type in beginner telescope in a lot of places, you can get a lot of bad information and get, um, you know, very very confident <laughs> people giving very wrong answers. Um, you know, and I think that like I've, I've seen so many people say things like, Hey, just go get a concrete tube. And the first thing you want to do is go home and grind your first mirror. And it's like, that's, that's a really <laughs> good way to get people to never look through a telescope ever. Um, grind your first mirror and put it in a concrete tube. Like that's a bad answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, you see that stuff. And so, Um, we, we really try to steer people toward the right things, which in my opinion, simplicity is the answer. It's got to be simple and every, you have to look at each thing that someone has to do in order to be successful as one of the hurdles we're trying to take out of it. Like even something as simple as collimation, that's not something that we have to think about in any other aspect of our day to day. So, you know, it's not something that's going to come natural or intuitive when you start thinking about telescopes. And that's why I generally start people with refractors if I can, you know, and even if it's an acro, if you don't want to spend a lot of money or reflectors that are very easy to collimate with a good set of instructions on what collimation even is, you know, like a a Dobsonian, you know, which is a Newtonian design. Um, Stuff like that, I think is really the best way, you know, people end up on these mounts, like equatorial mounts with hand controls and i i've been doing astronomy a long time now i would still struggle with that <laughs> yeah know? yeah
2: well they don't do what they what the old ones actually never did what you thought they'd do they don't really slew the telescope very well um at least the old ones didn't they just uh, slowed down or speeded up the little clock drive that you had um but I mean, these aren't even you know, driven these are manual oh I see so yeah the, 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 the
1: really inexpensive ones are just manual brian you've you've seen that. I mean how many times have we you know, seen those problems. But uh, yeah, these are manual. So you still have to polar align to get it to work correctly, but you have to hand crank the, uh, you know, the mount to get it to track to follow. And it can be, you know, it's not intuitive. It's not left, right up and down because it's set equatorially. And so that can be a really big problem. But when you start typing in beginner telescopes, because those are so inexpensive, they automatically get classified as beginner. And it's just not a simple way for someone to go out and find the targets they want to find. And then of course view them over any period of time. Yeah, that's
2: a really good point. Um, beginner does not mean cheap um, or inexpensive. Uh, in fact, some of the best beginner scopes um, are some of the most expensive because you don't everything's automated. You don't have to think about a thing. And the Stellina and EV scope come to mind in that in that regard. These are telescopes you just buy them, set them up, level them, and turn them on, and you're using them, getting getting images and whatever you need that is a great beginner scope but it is by no means cheap and so uh so cheap doesn't necessarily mean uh beginner uh, in fact you need a little bit more knowledge in some cases to uh really use these inexpensive scopes so well what are they buying well, what what are most people are they buying dobsonians or just the 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 lower end refractors what are most people
1: buying for a beginner Typically, scope i mean brian what are, what are you generally recommending to people for beginner?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it depends. I I always try to ask people like what they're trying to do. You know, some people are trying to just do visual only. Some people are just trying to do deep sky astrophotography. So it depends. But like generally, if people are going down the deep sky astrophotography route, I would always recommend a small refractor to start. Um, Any kind of refractor is going to be pretty, pretty solid for a beginner. Uh, If you're doing visual and you don't mind carrying a larger telescope and, Have the ability to do that. uh, I would I would probably recommend a Dobsonian, especially for those who are willing to learn the night sky. Because that's the other thing, you know, with an all manual telescope, you're gonna kind of have to learn the night sky as as you go along with it.
2: Yeah. Okay. Let's let's just set the ground rules here for this episode. Let's go ahead for the sake of this episode. Assume that we're not going to be imaging. Imaging, in my opinion, is not a beginner activity. So let's go ahead and say that we're going to just talk about optically, visually using your telescope. So if yeah. if we if, so let's okay. So you, you say, Brian, that you're pointing people towards uh, refractors. If it were me, I would if I were, uh, were talking to somebody on the phone, I would probably push them towards an eight or a ten inch Dobsonian, um, just because I think the experience for a beginner would be really good and one look at them and you know how to use them
1: um, yeah it's just push it around it's left right up down
2: that's it's right you set it on the
1: ground to get put it wrong in the, put the tube in the cradle and that's it except for you know most dobsonians they will for one you still have to collimate them which is aligning the mirrors so you still have to do that which means you at minimum need another tool as part of your process but the other thing is like like brian just said it's not going to move to these targets for you and that's where i think if you're going to go the reflector route it might be, and, and we're seeing more people do this than the, the Dobsonian. I know a lot of us, a lot of the users that have had scopes a very long time or have been doing this a long time, Dobsonian is a quick answer, but I see more people going into straight into computerized telescopes because of the idea. I mean, think about the simplicity of just, especially like with something like the Celestron SEs or, you know, the, the Mead, the starter Mead kits that are already uh, motorized, computerized. It's like there's something really wonderful about just punching in Saturn and then watching the telescope move to Saturn. It's all—it's such a rewarding experience, too. And then once it's there, it's going to track it for you automatically. You know, unless you get a pretty expensive and a pretty heavy Dobsonian, it's not going to do that. And so no, these smith Cassegrain designs, I think, are really, really excellent. You can get those for under $1,000. I mean, those are really, really excellent for visual astronomy just jumping in.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Well,
2: so you let's let's pretend. Okay, let, let's go with several classes of scopes. So start with what you just talked about: the next, the Celestron uh, and, and Se SC class scopes, and then we'll move to Dobsonian and maybe talk about the refractors after that. Somebody's over the holidays bought a a Celestron or Schmidt Casse or even a, a Maxitov uh, tube. Telescope. It has a fork arm on it. It's got a bunch of buttons on a hand paddle that came with it. Um, these are called go to telescopes because they go to things. You can turn them on. It's got computers and databases in the little handset there where when you turn it on, everything you, it needs to know about what it's doing. Some of them even have GPSs to tell where it is on the planet Earth. All you've got to do when you get one of these scopes. Put it on a level surface, it, it, some, uh, the tripod needs to be level, and some of them even have little bubble levels on there, and then you screw all the things together to put the, t- the, the telescope on the tripod, and turn it on, and then depending on what you bought, a whole series of things would happen. You might get, um, you know, prompted for your date and time. Uh, You enter that in and then you, or you, if, if it's got a GPS unit, it'll probably try and get all of that from the GPS satellite where it also figures out where it is. Otherwise you've got to tell it these things. And then you do that all in the hand pad and then you're ready to go. You just tell it what you want to see. And then the telescope moves over and and then it'll t- and it'll go beep sometimes. <laughs> and you look through the eyepiece and there it is. There we go. There's Those the are Andromeda a real galaxy. description.
0: <laughs> Those are really accurate sound effects, Tony. Like I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, actually
2: that's why I'm able to do I'm actually retired because my voice was used uh to do these sound effects. So Yeah, which is I make so much money on that. Beep. On the
1: sound effect. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's pretty it's a pretty good job.
0: You're like the Siri of the Astronomy World. <laughs> that's right
1: would that be good (laughs) welcome to the night sky (laughs) it's it's um you know it's still yes and that's exactly what happens and i i like the you know you see a lot of stuff where people are like hey you got to get a manual telescope to start or it's cheating Uh, then you're not really being forced to learn this the night sky you got to do it the hard way it's like yeah no No, you don't have to do that at all. Just like you don't have to buy your first car where you crank it up in the front, you know? That's right. I mean, what I just
2: outlined is the quintessential 21st century beginner telescope experience. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think that it's good to know the components of a telescope. And when you're shopping, like I was saying in the beginning, it's like that's the first place that something can, can go wrong is in the telescope selection. And it's harder than it seems if you're really going to like, it's, I guess what I should say is it's easy to get overwhelmed by the selection options. There are so many different options and so many different opinions that Brian, what you said you do is you start asking questions. What are you trying to do? And even if it's confined to visual astronomy, it's still a question that applies. Like, well, what are you trying to see? And, you know, questions like, well, how portable do you need this to be? Because I would recommend a very different telescope to someone that's going to set it in their backyard and leave it covered all the time, than to someone that's going to have it in their back seat, going from dark sky site to dark sky site on the weekends.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I do want to also just plug us for a second. You know, here at OPT, we have a ton of really helpful uh, blogs that kind of help you narrow down which beginner scopes are going to be good for you. Uh, we sell probably thousands of telescopes on our site but if you head to our blog uh, you can find a bunch of lists of really good beginner telescopes that uh, pretty much any of them are going to work well for you
1: yeah those have already we, we wouldn't put anything on those lists actually Brian you're the, you're the one that uh, that put out the final list right that approved it all
0: yeah yeah I helped uh, put put together that list yeah
1: yep. Yeah. And so um yeah that that stuff is already gone through this process just trying to make it easier but the selection process can be a challenge because the first thing you run into is there are different types of telescopes and I guess that's the real starting place is refractors we've already used these words but refractors and reflectors and then a combination of the two called catadioptrics um uh, most commonly people buy Schmidt cassegrains for visual um and each one really has some some excellent qualities about it. So there's not anybody that's like, oh well, only refractors work well, or only, you know, true reflectors work well. I I disagree with that. And why are all three so popular and all three have like diehard fans? Um, you know, it's because they all really carry something special about them. Even though aperture is technically king in visual astronomy, not so much in Um, imaging it's like well with that aperture also comes a lot of size by definition and size generally carries with it weight and sometimes that's a problem and you know you you also with reflectors have issues like a uh, central obstruction it always has another mirror with it for visual and you know uh, refractors don't have that issue and you know you have to get into all of the details that's why i think the mo of hey let's let's talk through this and let's work through a couple different scenarios maybe that's the best way to do this now is talk about simply being the backyard astronomer with a first telescope whether it was just given for christmas or you're in the process of selecting one with those three types who do they fit you know because that's really step one is the selection process
2: Okay. All right. Well, um, I still want to go to what kind of issues you'll you'll discover with the with a uh, Dobsonian and then a uh, refractor. But let's do yeah. Let's go ahead and do that first. Let's go ahead and say, you know who who would. What would you get out of each of these different kinds of scopes? Um, so we we have, as we're talking about the the uh, catadioptric telescopes, these are Schmidt Cassegrains that have mirrors and corrector plates on them. There are just reflectors, which are things like Dobsonian's, and just refractors. Um, so let's let's go ahead and so who would who would benefit as a beginner from just getting a refractor?
1: So I'll I'll take refractors. This one okay. they are my they're my favorite type of telescope. I, I have also a lot the of most refractors expensive. Here. I should add usually, they, they are so for. There's two two real subcategories of refractors. You'll see uh, acromats and apochromatic refractors. And so apo generally means that it's going to be a triplet um, or more lenses, but fully color corrected. Even though acromat does technically mean color corrected, it's not truly color corrected. It will correct two of the colors but uh there's going to be some fringing in the blue specifically like purple will fringe so if you look at something really bright all of the colors come to focus together except purple so for instance if you looked at the moon the outside edges of the moon with that because it's so bright would have this purple fringing this purple hue to it whereas with an apo it's going to be correct color on everything you look at but apos, as you just mentioned tony are the most expensive per inch of aperture type of telescope. So, you know, and drastically so. They are very, very expensive where you can get a four inch reflector for a couple hundred bucks, a four inch apochromatic refractor is gonna be several thousand. So they are a lot more expensive um, to get big aperture. And so typically they aren't used as much in visual astronomy by people that are, you know, very into the hobby. They are used more frequently, I'd say, in imaging, although they do give stunning views visually, and I still love them because they can be so contrasty. They don't have any mirrors in them at all. So it's just uh, lenses all the way through, which means that none of the light striking the elements gets blocked by anything. It all comes through. And there's no reflectors where that's the case. And so you get these really, really contrasty, beautiful images with a very dark, you know, black sky. And then uh, the way that, you know, David Nagler was uh, describing it from Teleview when he was here was that it looks like jewels on velvet, you know, um, on black yeah. velvet. And it's like, and it's true. Oh, there's nothing these, like
2: a Teleview eyepiece with one of these, man. They well, yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. But <laughs> it, um, it's just a gorgeous view. Even if you don't get the aperture, you won't get as bright an image, but the image you do get is very, very crisp, and they're just so easy to use. There's no collimation involved. There's no maintenance outside of making sure you don't you know, get fingerprints on the elements or anything like that and have to clean it. They're just literally carried around like you would a camera lens, throw it on there, throw it on a mount, and you're off and running. There's nothing else to do. So they're very, very easy to use and maintain the only real downside to to them is the expense which is a, it's a you know a big difference yeah yeah, but they do make
2: good, you know, I mean, you buy one and you have it for life. I mean, it's never going to not work. I mean, there's you don't buy a refractor and then just go, oh, you know what, uh, you know, I, you, I need a software update for this. You know, the optics, once they're made, they are always going to work. So you can hand that down to your children, your grandchildren, and that yeah. telescope will still operate every bit as good as it did the day you bought it provided you took reasonably good care of it, put the lens cover on and, and, uh, stored it in a place that wasn't too damaging. It'll still be there, still work. It's just,
1: the optics don't change. And there are a lot of people doing it. I mean, the, the Radian Raptor is a small refractor. It's exactly what Brian was describing. It's like, um, you know, a 61 millimeter refractor and it's the best selling, um, small refractor that we have because it's, you know, also very versatile. It's like, well, you can, you can buy the $30 part to use it visually, right? You can use the eyepiece adapter, use it visually. But then if you ever decide to get into imaging, refractors make it very, very easy to make that leap. Whereas many reflectors, you can still make the jump, but it's not nearly as easy because they're typically going to be, especially if the mount's built in, it's going to be alt-azimuth mounts, you know, the left, right, up, down mounts. And, um, you know, you're going to run into some issues with rotation and you also have, you know, everything else becomes more concerning, like the collimation and uh, just you can run into a lot more issues. The, the front glass on those things is a lot harder to keep dew off of and just uh, some more challenges involved. So I like the versatility of them, but you do give up aperture, you know, if you're going to try to stay in a certain price point. So that's that's definitely something to note. Why is that, uh, Brian? Why are,
2: why are they so much more expensive than a corresponding reflector telescope?
0: Yeah, well, it's because the glass that is used in refractors uh, generally needs to be ground to a higher precision to be able to get a good image. And the larger that glass element or elements are, um, the more expensive it gets. So it just kind of compounds it. You know, you think about You think about a reflector telescope, you need, you know, one large primary mirror. So one large piece of glass. Whereas like if you have a triplet refractor, you need three large pieces of glass in there. And that gets very, very expensive to produce.
2: And for a, refra- a reflector, only one surface of that glass blank has to be perfect or at least really high quality, whereas in a refractor, the entire thing has to be flawless. So getting a, a, a completely transparent, nicely figured uh, refracting element is way more expensive to produce because you have all of the glass to work with whereas in a reflector you just got the top surface to worry about and you just put a coating on it and it's a lot cheaper and you don't have to worry so much about perfect glass all the time okay well what do you have anything to add brian about what kind of person would benefit from a refractor
0: Uh, i think dustin pretty much nailed it on the head (laughs) okay well let's talk about dobsonians
2: and reflectors these are the simple optical diselements we just talked about they have generally two reflecting surfaces on them they have a big giant primary at the bottom and a little tiny diagonal mirror well not always tiny Uh, a smaller mirror in the in the front that reflects the light off of the uh, primary and into the eyepiece area these are real simple to use dobsonians were invented by a guy named john dobson who wanted something that was just It just worked. And it was a very simple thing to use. And for the aperture that you get for it, it's also relatively inexpensive. And and aperture for visual astronomy is the same as exposure time in imaging. The larger the primary is, the more light that hits your eye, the brighter the image, the clearer it is. So that's why you need, for just visual use, a really big well, light bucket, really, to capture all of this stuff. So a Dobsonian is one example. There's also Newtonian reflectors. That was my first telescope, an old criterion RV6 that was just an open tube with two mirrors in it. And I also categorize them as pretty indestructible. You can, they they can take a lot of pounding. Um, They are, you know, they can, you can, you know, drop them and, well, hopefully not too much but bang them against things and they tend to survive Um, but they do suffer from this thing we've been talking about all the time or Dustin's mentioned it several times which is misalignment the little mirrors have to be perfectly aligned to get any kind of decent image out of it and that's called collimation and it can there's lots of tools out there you can buy they have little collimator things you can buy to put in the eyepiece that help you get them get them aligned but really you kind of have to do it almost every time you use the telescope, wouldn't you guys say? I mean, maybe, yeah. if you, especially if you move it a lot, right?
0: I have a Newtonian myself, and um, anytime I take it out, I really have to collimate it to get the best performance out of it. I mean, collimation is kind of known as this like big, scary thing to people who haven't done it really before. But to me, I think of it more kind of like uh, I like to compare it to kind of like tuning an instrument every time you play it. Um, it's a, short a great process. Analogy. You know, it takes a few minutes, but once you get the hang of it, you know, it's pretty pretty brainless and then you can get get on your way after you're done. But, you know, it does need to be done just about every time.
2: Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I like that. It's like, yeah, it's like tuning your guitar every time you get ready to play it. It's It's got to be, you know, adjusted just a little bit. Um, now, you also have to adjust... Other kinds of telescopes, like Schmidt Cassegrains, these are like the Celestrons and Meads. Those also have to be uh, lined up too. Um, but you're you're making your adjustment in a slightly different different spot. Um, is that right, Brian? They're there. You do it at the edge of the corrector plate. There.
0: Um, you can you can generally just collimate an SCT by adjusting the secondary. Thankfully, but the nice thing about SCTs or, or other catadioptrics kind of is that they need to be collimated much less frequently than uh, a comparable reflector. So, you know, whereas reflector, you may need to collimate it just about every time you take it out. I would say you could probably collimate uh, an SCT or a uh, catadioptric maybe once every six months or so um, and be, be OK.
2: What kind of telescope has the secondary silvered onto the back of the corrector plate? That's not an S that is that, is that a Maxutov? Do you know what I'm talking about? Some, some telescopes have the, have the secondary, uh, the secondary mirrors kind of silvered onto the corrector plate. Have you guys seen those? You know what I'm talking about?
1: Uh, no, because I don't like, so they just have a spherical, just central. I don't know. Now now I'm
2: questioning whether I actually saw this. Uh, Tony, are you making
1: things up right now? just i may be i may be
2: but you well, know what maybe i just designed a telescope that doesn't need collimation um, just now if you make the corrector plate the same figure as the spherical mirror in the secondary you don't need to collimate it damn okay i have to go i have to go i have to go, have to go real quick and make this patent no, <laughs> no I, i'm patent. serious though it there really isn't a telescope that that has that i thought i thought there was never mind Okay, <laughs> so they SCTs Max Kutovs, and Richie Crichton, Richie Crichton. Yeah, um, I think that's just that's I'll, one
1: of those ideas that sounds like really really good when you're when you're first thinking about it, and then the more you dig into it, you're like, it's kind of like, no, why don't they just pour <laughs> a bunch of aluminum into a crater on the moon and have a telescope?
2: Yeah, yeah, they could
1: they could be a huge primary, and then you're like. <laughs>
2: The last yeah. simple design for a, for a really big telescope mirror was when they had this big vat of mercury in a in a big disk like a gigantic petri dish, and they spun it. And of course, when you spin mercury, it it makes a, a parabolic shape. And that that was actually an idea that, that people use. Of course, mercury is also poisonous, but you know they don't let, don't let that. And you can't really point it anywhere.
1: Yeah, and <laughs> you it don't can only point straight, straight up, up ever. <laughs> right.
2: So That's not a beginner luck. scope. That's not a beginner scope. Don't buy that yeah. one. <laughs> not recommended. <laughs>
1: it's not on that right, so list. What else, we were talking about?
2: Uh, what else do we, we need to cover for this? Uh, the the SCT type of telescopes. Uh, who would who would benefit from that, guys?
1: Yeah.
0: So I think for SCTs. Um, Generally speaking, you know, I think SETs really excel at, uh, planetary and lunar viewing in particular because they have such a long native focal length to begin with. I mean, you know, most of the SETs you'll see out there are easily like 1500 millimeter focal lengths at the lowest price range, um, which is really nice for, for being able to observe the planets because the planets are so small in the sky, um,
2: and that's counterintuitive, talk- isn't it? Because the tubes are shorter.
0: Right. Yeah. The whole, whole SCT and, and catadiotric thing is that they come in a really nice small package. And that's thankfully to due to their folded optic design, which is really nice. So if you're looking for like a really portable scope with a long focal length, you know, SCT, uh, or equivalent is the way to go for sure. Um, and pretty much all of the, uh, Beginner SCTs these days, like Dustin was talking about before, like the Celestron Nexstar SC series, um, they all come with a computerized mount for the most part. Um, So you can just be ready to go and have uh, the mount do all the pointing for you and you don't really have to you know, be looking at an app or a star chart and trying to figure out where something is in the night sky, it'll just automatically point to it and then keep it centered for you, which is really nice as well.
2: Yeah, I love the portability aspect of them. They, they, they just fit into a big case and, and off you go.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's an upgrade path too, which is really awesome. Like you can uh, buy tools for it to simplify the process even more. Like Celestron has, for instance, the StarSense Auto-Align. Where you know you you plug this in and then even your alignment process is done for you, where you turn it on, walk away for a few minutes, come back, and it's ready to go. You just tell it where to go, and you're off and running. And so it's really nice with um, with tools like that. like you don't have to start with it, but it might be something that like it's nice knowing that those options are there with a telescope purchase where, hey, if you really get into the hobby, you might want to add in some of these features where, it makes life easier, and it makes everything just that much quicker to get up and going. Uh, and dude, that is—you know—that just reminded me of something I want to point
2: out to people: is that the telescope that you're going to use the most is the one that's got the lowest barrier to getting outside and if you've got if you've if you're sitting there in your nice warm living room thinking to yourself boy it's really clear outside i love to go out there but then you're thinking about well i got a polar align it. i got to go out and and schlep this heavy telescope out there and i got to do the uh, star alignment procedure on it these telescopes that if you spend a little more and buy the go-to capabilities that dustin was just describing and then these, these these small upgrades you're actually going to it's you add some, you're going to, it actually adds some value to your scope because you're going to use it more. And you're going to be like much more inclined to go outside, put it on a level piece of ground and turn it on and have it be ready. than you will be with going through all of these other steps. And, you know, I think that, that you know, that really is, needs to be emphasized more for a beginner because the, the more you'll be excited to get out there and say, you know, I really want to look at the crab nebula tonight but i've never seen it i could never find it myself and you just go out and you tell the telescope to go find the crab nebula for you and there it is that's exciting that's really fun and so uh, for a beginner anyway um sometimes this stuff costs a little more but it's totally worth it um in the in the fact that you'll use the thing more imagine you spend less for a telescope and it sits in your closet all the time because it's harder to
1: use Exactly. You know, which which is money better spent, right? <laughs> There's a frustration curve. You want to buy above. And Tony, I just have to point out. So so Brian, it's funny to hear Tony, you know, talk about portability. And I agree with what Tony said. But <laughs> oh, Tony's personal telescope is going. seven feet tall and 180 pounds. <laughs> I knew you. You're going to bring that up. Not a beginner's scope,
2: folks. He has to go That's out there right. with like scaffolding but I am motivated. So I get out there and uh, well, actually I've, I've actually sort of modified mine. Mine's actually four wheel drive now. And I, and I can just, I I can just drive it out and wherever I want in the clear sky. And it's, it's great. It's really awesome. But yeah, yeah you, portability. you probably do have to use the ladder though with it, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I got a little step ladder to go with it and I've just gotten the concrete pad uh, uh, poured. So I'm ready to start using that as my, for using this thing because um it really i don't want to spend a lot of time leveling it but this is a go-to scope as well so it you know i have the added ability of just setting it up once and going um Mm -hmm. but it is huge it is massive
0: yeah, you've got your your stepladder to set it up. You've also got your eighteen wheeler to haul it around.
2: <laughs> well, like I said, mine's four wheel drive now. I
0: <laughs> Sorry, my bad.
2: I got the upgrade where I, you know, got the uh, the uh, Skywatcher four
1: wheel drive attachment. <laughs> so so it's fair to say then the asterisk to that recommendation <laughs> is small and portable means you'll use it more, or just an extreme level of quality that makes you want to look through it 24 hours a day. There is that. That's a great way to put it. That's right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I'm also not a beginner. So that is not a beginner (laughs) telescope at all, but the views through it are, I mean, I remember when we were looking at Saturn through that scope, it's, you know, it's the size of a quarter in the eyepiece. It's just gigantic.
2: Yeah. Even, even with the, the shorter focal length, it's still, it's still beautiful. All the planets are amazing in there. And, uh, so yeah, but that's just, that's what I'm, I was saying before. Twenty inch uh, aperture gives me very bright images, and so uh, through an eyepiece, and so um, it is the equivalent to an imager getting lots of exposures. Um, so it's a luxury that I'm lucky to have because of you guys. But you know, it is it is a trade off. You know these these smaller four inch refractor telescopes that cost an arm and a leg are amazing. But visually, I think you're going to be a little disappointed in this, unless you're under really dark skies, because you're not going to see the level of detail just because your eye can't accumulate photons like a camera can. So, you know, there's all these trade-offs in astronomy, and you're going to learn this as a beginner. You guys are going to learn <laughs> what these trade-offs are. But for now, with your very basic telescope or whatever it is you you've bought for the first time, the thing you want to keep uppermost in your mind is what can I do to make this thing more understandable to me and that I'll use it so that I'll use it more because the more you use it the more you'll do other things and eventually even go into imaging is there can you guys think of any telescope that a beginner could buy let's say it was up because we promised to just keep this down to observing visually that wouldn't also be ultimately upgradable into some kind of imaging rig is there something that just won't do that?
1: I'm trying to understand the question. So you're saying, is there a telescope that you can buy that, that you cannot could image with? Right. That would not be upgradable.
2: Let's say you bought it thinking, I want to see Jupiter and Saturn and the Orion Nebula. But then you decided, because you get on all of, you've been listening to this podcast or you've been getting on Discord and or, or Twitch and watching all these imagers that you'd like to image now. Is there anything that wouldn't allow you. that that, that yeah. upgrade? Yeah, go for it, Brian. <clears throat>
0: Uh, That's a tough question because I think like if you try hard enough, any any kind of telescope can almost be used for imaging. Like, you know, I've seen some people use a Dobsonian, which is traditionally an extremely niche visual scope, right? Like it's pretty much only reserved for visual, but I've seen people... You know, get actually really good planetary images out of it if you put the right yeah, planetary camera in there. Um, and I've even seen people put an equatorial base on a Dobsonian and use it uh, that way for some some easy that's deep sky really imaging. That's really
1: going out of the way, though. It is. It's a you huge know, pain. Yeah, yeah. That's really. I mean, at that point, in the expense involved, you could have bought an entire imaging system. And I was gonna say the same thing, Brian. I was gonna say a Dobsonian would be an example of that. Your telescope, Tony, would be an example of that. But, you know, I forgot about, you know, people doing planetary with it because those are such short exposures, several exposures a second, that your your telescope would be phenomenal for mm-hmm. planetary.
2: Yeah. So, be, it would gather enough photons with the aperture that I could do really I could even do probably video astronomy with it, which I'm gonna yeah. uh, attempt here. imminently. Uh, yeah, that's true. Imminently. So
1: Yeah. So it wouldn't be good for long exposure photography. I think it's fair to say that you, yours would flex way too much to do a thirty True. minute exposure, yeah, or something like yeah, that. You know, right?
0: I would say the nice thing too is like any kind of beginner telescope you get, whether it's a reflector, refractor, uh, or catadioptric, you can always always start with at least smartphone imaging. So with just your phone, and that's how like I feel like most people start anyway. Um, but a smartphone, well, they just is put, still,
2: they just put it up and the eyepiece there. Is that what you mean?
0: That, or you get like a nice, uh, smartphone mount. They're actually pretty inexpensive these days. Can, you can get one for like 50 bucks or even less, and it kind of clamps onto the eyepiece that you already have. And then you mount your smartphone in there and it can align the camera right over the eyepiece. And then you can start taking pictures. Um, so, you know, it's definitely a good starting point, uh, for astrophotography for sure.
1: I love that one that, uh, actually, I sent it with you, Tony. You should have that in that box I sent you. It's a Celestron X Y Z YZ adapter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is in And there. that one's awesome because it allows you to put the phone in on the eyepiece, but then adjust it on three different uh, axes to get it perfectly lined up and then hold it there stable. So you can you can run live streams through your eyepiece with your phone attached to it with that Celestron adapter. Um, and you know, it'll be very stable for you. So whenever I did those live streams, um, with the Dab, but that's, that's how I always did them was with that adapter. I love that type of, um, streaming. Oh, okay. Well that, yeah,
2: that's something I gotta, I gotta get going on then because, um, yeah, I've just been, I've been really selfish with it and just been using it myself, but.
1: Yeah. I threw it in the box there with, for, with your kit. I just forgot to tell you what it was. Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I, in fact, I don't think I've taken it out. So, I, but
2: it is there. So, yes, okay. Um, that'll be next. So, live streaming with that will be will be uh, amazing. I think to try with that. So, cool.
1: Yeah, you know, you you touched on something a second ago. I want to go back to Tony. You were saying that you know, aperture. The reason aperture matters is because you can't collect photons the same way as you can with photography. And and we uh, we actually that's part of OPT University is explaining the differences. But that's the big reason that you know when we we talk about well you don't have to get this huge telescope to do astrophotography it's because the camera has an ability the eyeball does not with with your eye you cannot change your exposure time so it's going to get roughly a 60th of a second just over and over and over and you can't change it you can't tell your eye all right i want you to expose for 30 seconds now it's just going to Accumulate. It would be great if yeah. your eye could just accumulate these these photons. But it but won't you do can't. That and it's really easy to follow the logic of let's say let's say we did a one second exposure, and then we did a two second exposure. You can see how the two second exposure is going to gather twice the light, right? Same with a one minute and a two minute. You're going to gather twice the light. But now think about the human eye doing one sixtieth of a second, and then a camera going on the same system and doing one full second you can see that you've now gathered 60 times the light by just running one full second and um, so then start thinking about what we call long exposures five minute exposure or more you can see how things get extremely bright in a camera even if the aperture isn't there doing it for you With the human eye, because you have that limitation, the only way to get around that is to make the telescope bigger. And that's why aperture is king for visual astronomy. Yeah, and I I, I don't want
2: to be a downer on this, but I'm really pessimistic about the future of visual astronomy, at least because of the the amount of light pollution that we have, you almost, in order to be able to see some of these objects, you really do need this accumulating ability that your eyeball doesn't have, but that CCDs and other cameras do have, just to be able to see what's up in the sky. So with with things like uh, these smartphone adapters and with uh, more expensive telescopes like Stellina and EVscope, they, they will build up an image that you look at on a computer or smartphone I, I'm worried that, that, you know, it doesn't matter how nice the optical system you buy is or how great the the eyepiece that you buy and put on the other end of it is going to be, you're, The the night sky is just deteriorating to a point where you're not going to be able to really fully enjoy what people back in the day could observe before all this light pollution hit. I try not to be think about that too much, but it is, I think, a danger. And so this, the, the, and I also think it's why the imaging part of the hobby is exploding because not only can you do that, you can see very faint things almost immediately on your computer or smartphone, but it is something that's increasingly difficult to do visually. Then there's all the other exciting things where you can post it on, you know, social media with the work you've done and all that other kind of stuff. But I don't know, man. Right. It's like visual astronomy. I'm
1: I'm worried. <laughs> it's easy to build a community. It's easier, in my opinion, to build a community around imaging because it's shareable. Yeah, yeah it is because you have those and images and it's a very personal experience to, to sit
2: behind. Yeah, and it's very it's a very personal experience to sit behind an eyepiece quietly and and just underneath the canopy of stars, looking at it uh, with your eye. You know, just look, gazing into this piece of glass. But when I'm done, I'm done. You know, I don't really, I just go inside and get warm or, or, or drink some hot chocolate or whatever. But the 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 work has just gotten started for the imager, right? The imager has like gathered all of these images. Now they get to go in and process them and turn them into something, you know, super colorful or artistic or whatever. and then And then post them to all their friends who can go, wow, man, that's amazing.
1: I do just
0: want to say like, I'm an imager at heart. And so I agree, you know, like sharing, uh, you can, you can just share to exponentially more people with imaging. But for me, the most like enjoyment I've ever gotten out of astronomy is when I go and share the views through the eyepiece uh, of my telescope with other people. I was out um, just a few weeks ago showing uh, some strangers, the view through my telescope at the uh, Jupiter Saturn conjunction. And just like watching these people's reactions and just how mind blown they were was just yeah it was just an incredible experience and gave me more joy than I've ever gotten when I've you know looked at my computer screen and seen a cool image pop up I mean don't get me wrong that's an amazing feeling too but knowing that you're like impacting other people with the view uh, through your telescope is it's kind of untouchable in my opinion do you guys
2: think then based on what Brian just said that if let's say instead of having a telescope out in a crowd and you're showing them through the view through an eyepiece, would would you get the same reaction do you think if they had say a Stelina or something that connected to a smartphone and they could just look on their own phone do you think there would be the same level of excitement this same
1: connection it's tough to say i think it's getting closer um i think the problem is the the image quality is almost so good with when you're imaging i mean look at the, what we do Times square or wherever you know it's like the image quality is so good and you see so much of it there that the, it's almost hard for people to grasp that it's real. Um, and so I found this at star parties, too, that when you look through an eyepiece, the little imperfections, you can see the the eyepiece bouncing around a bit. You can see, you know, as it pops into focus when it's out of focus, and you, you kind of tune it to your own eye. You can see all those imperfections and it makes it real. Images, like if I go out and I take an HA image of the horse head, it's going to pop up on the screen and look like what you see posted to Instagram. And there's a disconnect there watching the screen count down for, you know, five minutes and then seeing this thing light up and then looking up at the night sky and not seeing it at all. It's really hard to believe what or even understand like what just happened, you know, there's a conversation that has to be had around how you just collected all of that light. Whereas when you just look into an eyepiece, like you just said, it's a very personal experience and it's something that you can see it happen as it happens. Go ahead, Brian. I was going to say, what about you? Do you think it will
2: be the same experience with your strangers, you know, looking through the eyepiece as if you had shown them the image on your smartphone?
0: You know, I, yeah, I agree with Dustin. And I would also like to add to that, like, you know, if you have, if you're taking images you know, and somebody walks up or whatnot, you know, it it feels like the person taking the images, like that view still belongs to them. It's just like, you know, versus looking through an eyepiece in a way it's like when you're looking through for yourself, you're like getting that experience for yourself. That view is yours. Whereas like, you're almost borrowing the image that you're seeing uh, if someone else is taking it. Um, so it's kind of not as personal of an experience without, true. without the eyepiece.
1: Yeah, that's their photo. That's not your view. Uh, so you don't think there'd be this wow moment like, oh my God, look no, at those rings. No, I'm not rings, saying that. Or- man. There's always a wow moment. When you show somebody, you, know, you can show people live live streams of the moon or you know, even when I do long exposure stuff and show people, it's always a wow. I'm just, I just mean it's not as quick to set in what you're seeing as it is when you just walk up to an eyepiece peek in and then there's Saturn that's a your whole world just changed moment (laughs) very true okay (laughs) (laughs) like you can't that's in your blood now it's never coming out you know that you are in this gigantic universe and it you're part of it you know you know that's not just your it's not just the stars in quotes right that like everybody's Kind of always known or there, and that we love, um, but it's now your universe. It just makes it very a real part of your life and something that can be explored. Yeah,
2: yeah, that's well said. Okay, Uh, anything to add to that, Brian? Or you just uh, is there any any um, real difference? Do you think between one or the other?
0: I would still say also just seeing something with your own eyes and having those photons just go directly to your eyes instead of a camera sensor and then a screen uh, and then your eyes, it's, it's still just visually viewing, just reigns supreme in terms of those things. Um, the only things they would say, like, maybe it's not or for like things you can't even see visually. Cause you know, sometimes cameras can pick up things that we could never see through a telescope, but Um, still, you know, the planets and the moon, especially in particular, is just unmatched for visual.
2: Okay, well, we're kind of reaching our hour here on this episode. I want to just sort of cap the end of this with maybe some advice for people who, they have just purchased a telescope, they've gotten their first one, they've brought it home. Uh, What advice would you guys give people uh, who may be looking at this box and feeling, what have I just done? Brian, you want to start?
0: Sure. Yeah. So, one thing I would always recommend people, and I think it's an often overlooked step, is your finder scope is your friend. And I think a lot of people try to set this up during nighttime. You know, they take their telescope out at night because that's the first time they're taking it out. And it's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense to use a telescope at night. But I would actually recommend taking your scope out first during the day. Um, get that finder scope aligned with what you're seeing through the eyepiece on your main telescope, and it will make your life so much easier. Do uh, not point also, it at
1: the sun, though. No. <laughs> yeah, do not point it at the sun. <laughs> stay way away from that. No, Yeah. stay <laughs> way like, away. Pick from a very that. far away tree as, and do not point it anywhere near the sun.
2: Yeah, on the horizons, a good, good, good way to protect yourself from that—at least not east or west horizon. Maybe north or south horizon um, would be good. That's really good advice. The finder scope is a small telescope that came with your scope. In most cases, it's a, it's a little telescope. Sometimes it's just a little series of rings that you look through but uh yeah getting that aligned will make your life a whole lot easier because you can it's a wider field of view you can see more of the sky through that scope and kind of get your bearings a little bit better than if you're looking at the high power or low uh, field of view um main eyepiece so that's really good advice dustin what about you
1: i think well i hope that the conversation today will at least tell you if if you just got your first scope hopefully it, it explains what that scope you have is and what it's uh, real benefits, the type of scope you have, what those benefits are, and the best way to use it. Um, I'd say that, you know, the next step is trying to understand the eyepieces because a visual scope is useless without them. And they drastically change the view that you see. Um, so that's re- the real versatility in a visual scope is that you can put different eyepieces in and, you know, of different focal lengths, and get more or less magnification. So, you know, with less magnification, you get all of the context of space around the object. And with more magnification, you can really zoom in and get all of the detail on things like the craters on the moon, or, you know, um, the rings of Saturn. and, And it makes it very exciting, but understanding eyepieces and really learning the differences in the ones that came with your telescope, Um, or even just kind of exploring, you know, some of the tutorials like Brian mentioned, we have on our website at optcorp.com. I think that's a, that's a good next step. Um, that, you know, after you've already understood your telescope, what type it is and understood the setup process, the next real point of exploration, I think is the eyepieces.
2: Yeah. And for me, my, my advice to you would be, and it touches on a lot of what uh, Dustin just alluded to, which is. I don't first of all don't be afraid of your scope get out there and use it but also forget about magnification high magnification is not your friend as a beginner and if you your telescope might have come with one eyepiece it might have come with two or three eyepieces and those numbers That are on those eyepieces will give you an indicator, but you've got to do some math of what kind of eyepiece or what kind of magnification that you're looking at. You want to start as a beginner, I think, with low magnification. That means the bigger numbers on the eyepiece, like 40 millimeter or 26 millimeter, those are going to give you lower magnification, and that's a good thing because it's just easier to use because when you put in the higher magnification eyepieces, the, one, the ones that say 13 millimeter or seven millimeter, those eyepieces are not only going to magnify what's in your eyepiece or what's in the telescope. It's also going to magnify the atmosphere. It's going to magnify the, the, the vibrations on the ground. All of that stuff is going to make the telescope harder to use. So, uh, something with, you know, 100 power is probably, a, I would say, a, a, a an upper limit for lo- looking through your telescope if you're a beginner. And the way you figure it out is you look at the focal length of your telescope, whatever it is, 2,000 millimeters or 1,500 or whatever it is, and just divide that number on your eyepiece into it, and that'll come out with a number, and that'll be your magnification. And there's a lot of other things involved, but as a beginner, I would say, you know, if you've got a misconception about high magnification equals good, get rid of that now. Because as a visual astronomer, uh, you're not going to be going up to higher magnifications unless you have some of the best mounts there are and to some of the most pristine sky conditions imaginable. Um, so that would be my advice um, for you taking... And don't be afraid. Get out there. Use it. Turn the knobs. You know. Figure it out. Um, you're not going to hurt anything. And um, unless you... Like drop it from a second story building or something. It's probably gonna be fine. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> oh God! I can't. Okay, here we go. Now people are gonna be like, "Oh, Tony said I can do whatever I want to my telescope. Let me <laughs> strap it to my dog and see what happens." Right? <laughs> I can just don't do it within common sense, people. Well, I guess we'll go on that note, as Tony just got everybody destroying their brand new telescopes, let me go ahead and end this episode before I get in more trouble. Um, Brian Fulda he, we, uh, and uh, Dustin Dustin Gibson, both of whom are awesome people at OPT, um, and they are a great resource, so definitely hit up their website, optcorp.com, and look at all the stuffs that are there. And on behalf of Brian and Dustin, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for listening.